So in the article titled, C.S. Lewis's Dark Night of the Soul, the author writes, it was in 1956, in his late 50s, that C.S. Lewis finally found love. He married the object of his affections, American writer Joy Gresham. But four years later, after an agonizing battle with her health, Joy had passed away. During the period of intense grieving that followed, Lewis filled four notebooks, first with words of anguish and rage, then increasingly with an introspective record of the changes that his loss worked in his character. The notebooks were published one year after Joy's death and were titled A Grief Observed, under the pseudonym N.W. Clerk. Lewis experienced, in other words, both emotional and the intellectual pain of absence. Not just the absence of his wife, but the immense absence of God. The dark night of the soul, in his words, are as follows, followed, Meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? The human experience, friends, is riddled with times of great pleasure and prosperity. It's also riddled with times of drastic defeat and despair. Friend, who who are you in times of defeat and despair? Maybe there are some here today that are walking through a time of defeat. You're trusting God, but like Lewis, you have found a door that has been slammed in your face with the sound of the double bolting locks inside. Maybe your health is deteriorating and you feel it cruel of the Lord to be silent. Maybe your financial situation is gloomy and you feel like you're drowning. Maybe it's relational. You're single and long for a spouse, but you feel you've been shut down time and time again. Or you're married, but your marriage is struggling and going down a path that is not how you had always dreamed of. Are you weary of a particular sin in your life? And have you been begging for God to take it away? And lastly and worstly, you feel as though God has forgotten about you entirely. You sit here this morning with the feeling that you are unseen by God and everyone else for that matter and you are on the brink of losing it all. 
Friends, God's faithful intervention brings death to despair and hope for the sufferer. Friends, if you can relate to our text this morning, then it's going to feel like a lifeboat to someone who is lost at sea. Please follow along as I read Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the ears of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Friends, we could almost end there. What a beautiful text. Pray you find encouragement and hope this morning. Starting in verses one and two, the psalmist here is Asaph. He's a musician and choir master in David's tabernacle. In verses one and two, we see the first expression and rendering of the psalmist's trial. I cry aloud to God. And then he emphasizes it by repeating aloud to God. This insinuates that he is praying earnestly and fervently. Even Jesus prayed aloud with tears. And he was heard because of his godly fear and reverence. Verse 2 says, On the day of trouble, 
he sought the Lord's assistance and favor. Imagine you were on the brink of, of drowning. How desperate are you for, for rescue? The last line of verse 2 says, I stretched out without wearying hands. My soul refuses to be comforted. A truth that we can draw from verse 2 is that grief can be great without being sinful. There will be times in your Christian life where you resonate with the psalmist. Your soul refuses to be comforted. What the psalmist is not saying is that you will take a posture of arrogance and that you will shut out all ventures of encouragement and hope. But I think the heart of what the psalmist means is that grief may be so great that only time and tears will be your companions until light breaks. There's an old Scottish proverb I heard many years ago by a man named Sir Andrew Barton saying, fight on my men. I am hurt, but I am not slain. I'll lay me down and bleed a while, and then I'll rise and fight again. Friends, grief is tumultuous, scary, and heavy. Notice that even in the midst of grief, the psalmist kept his hands continually lifted up. You see the imagery of surrender and dependence. Though his soul refused comfort, he maintained that posture of surrender and dependence. Verse 3 says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. W.S. Plummer writes, on two, occasion, thoughts, on two occasions, thoughts of God may afflict believers. First, when they are borne down by a sense of guilt and fear that God is angry with them. Secondly, when they remember how he formally appeared for their, their deliverance but now seems to have forgotten them and to pass over their judgment. There are moments in the life of every believer when God in his ways becomes unintelligible or cryptic. We can get lost in profound meditation and nothing is left but a disheartened and hopeless sigh. Maybe you've asked the question out loud, God, I don't know what you are doing in my life right now. What are you trying to teach me through this? This is hard and painful. I don't understand. John Calvin writes, however much we may experience fretting, sorrow, and anxiety. We must persevere in calling upon God even in the midst of these great barriers. Friends, it is necessary for us to cry aloud to God. It is not arrogance or adolescence. 
It is godly. When sin feels like it's winning in your life, or depression and anxiety blindside you, cry aloud to God for rescue. Verses four through six. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Verse six, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. You guys ever heard the term that it gets worse before it gets better? Well, that's true, especially for our friend Asaph. Spurgeon writes, sleep is a great comforter, but it forsakes the sorrowful. And then their sorrow deepens and it eats into the soul. Asaph not only can't sleep because of his sorrow, but now he can't speak. Plummer writes again in his commentary, in such troubles, a man is often quite powerless so that he cannot speak, but only thinks upon God and hopes in him. Thus his thoughts and his hope are instead of word, spoken word. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit. Verse five is where we begin to see a slight shift Tears and time have been companions. And now we see where Asaph is beginning to venture into hope. He is beginning to think about earlier times when he witnessed God's faithfulness. Asaph was present when David brought back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. No doubt, that was a happy time. And thinking of earlier times, though, he, he begins to think of a song which brings a homeward pool of reflection. It is likely he's contracting, con contrasting the songs he sang in happier times. Little side note, what a gift music is. In the corner of the darkest room of sorrow and anguish, songs of praise illuminate. They really do have a way of lifting our souls back to God. I know that's been true of my life. All of this contemplation leads him to open the gate that leads to soul searching and contemplation. The last two lines of verse six say, let me meditate in my heart then my spirit made a diligent search. Friends, in times of trial, there are three questions you must contemplate. One, why does God allow trial and pain? It is so important for us to be theologically and biblically informed on why God allows bad things to happen to good people. It is not because he is cruel. He is set on glorifying himself 
through the pain and suffering. God is so confident in himself and his ability to comfort and draw near to you that he allows these difficult things to happen. Mainly so that you may know him more deeply. Our prayer should be this morning, whatever it takes to know you more deeply, Lord, do it. Question two, what is my present duty? What do you need to do in order to remain faithful as a follower of Christ in the midst of trial and suffering? What must you do to not sin during trial and suffering? You can inquire of God, and that is not wrong, but to call him cruel and a monster for allowing the calamity is wrong, and it's tragic for your soul. Question three, how can I hope and pray for deliverance? What does this look like? What means of grace do you currently have access to? Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, the scriptures, the promises of God. What does worship look like for you in suffering? Friends, no doubt trials are hard, but they are purposeful and essential in the life of every believer. Chris Armstrong, a blogger, writes, God simply does to us whatever needs doing, and it is often painful. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, that book, think of Eustace, who turned into a dragon by his own greedy, dragonish thoughts. And he was turned back only by the deep-gouging ministrations of the claws of Aslan. If you're in a season of suffering, as hard as it may be, lean in. Whatever form your suffering is, maybe it's like Eustace, and your pain may be self-inflicted. Or you feel blindsided by your pain, and it wasn't self-inflicted. Lean in and trust that God is good. One of my favorite lines from a song we sing here is, What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Point two. My first point, if you're taking notes, I forgot to mention it. But it says, cry aloud into the darkness. Point one. Point two is questions often lead to answers. Verses seven through nine. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? 
Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? To Asaph, these questions were haunting. His worst nightmare. We see here the exaggerated reasoning of a discouraged soul. Asking questions like Asaph gives us a framework on how to grieve and work through our doubts. These questions appear to be negative, and they give us a glimpse into Asaph's depressed state of mind. But these questions will soon bring him closer to God. God understands our limitations. God most certainly knows our frame. He is not, God is not intimidated by these questions. God is not like us. He does not get defensive or hasty. He listens and he is purposeful in his care and how he responds. Asking questions can also be a form of meditation. I really like the definition of meditation that says, meditation is the mind laboring to affect the heart. Meditation is the mind laboring to affect the heart. I believe that is what we see the psalmist doing in a way. We need to ask questions sometimes to order our emotions and our thoughts. No doubt, in the dark night of the soul, questioning can almost feel like a form of torture. Like I said, these questions for Asaph were his nightmare. But God allows this process in our lives because it is part of the work of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of God making us holy. Now back to the article I referenced in the intro. Ultimately, Lewis decides that his spiritual darkness was a sort of divine shock treatment. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover it himself. Likening his former faith to a house of cards, Lewis concludes, the sooner it was knocked down, the better. And only suffering could do it. In the dark night of the soul, we find ourselves questioning and inquiring. But nonetheless, it is purposeful and it produces in us a hope that can't be messed with. God does not afflict us because it's a game to him. God is determined to make us like Jesus. Whatever it takes and at no avail. Now, friends, is the part where it starts to get better. It got worse before it got better. But now we will see how Asaph 
comes out of his depressed state. My third point, determination is birthed out of desperation. Verses 10 through 15 read, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the only God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph is at a turning point in his dark night of the soul moment. I love how Charles Spurgeon captures this moment. He has won the day. He talks reasonably now and surveys the field with a cooler mind. He confesses that unbelief is an infirmity and a weakness, a folly, a sin. He may, he may also be understood to mean, this is my appointed sorrow. I will bear it without complaint. Friends, when we perceive that our affliction is dealt out by the Lord and is ordained portion of our cup, we become reconciled to it. And we no longer rebel against it. Rebel, sorry. No longer rebel against it. Verses 11 through 12, we see Asaph is determined to believe correctly about God. Even in the midst of his sorrow, he is making war against his doubts. He starts off by saying, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Then saying, I will remember your wonders of old. W.S. Plummer writes, history and prophecy are two great sources of comfort to the saints. The former tells us what God has done, and the latter tells us what God will do. Asaph redirected his mind away from his present troubles to what God has done in the past, and he found renewed strength in that. Remember our definition of meditation, the mind laboring to affect the heart. You see Asaph doing this. He's starting to come back to life. You are seeing a passion continue to be, start to be kindled in his heart. The meditation and questions he asked during his suffering has brought him now to this point. Verses 13 through 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, children of Jacob and Joseph. Steve Lawson writes of verse 13, with a mountain of confidence, Asaph acknowledged that the past miracles of God were holy. With a burst of boldness, he declared the greatness of God. It is almost like Asaph finally had his aha moment. The product of biblical meditation is passion, boldness, confidence in God. Derek Kidner, another commentator, writes, holy in such a context is a formidable word. 
conveying the aspect of God as one who dwells in unapproachable light. Fearful as an enemy, but glorious as a friend. What is so comforting about this passage is that we witness Asaph coming out of a dark place and coming back to life with renewed and restored hope. It gives us a framework for how to grieve well, how to suffer well. He's beginning to recount the works of the Lord and in the process reminding himself that God is capable of doing these wondrous deeds on his behalf now in the present. He is reminding himself of the sovereign power of God, but also God's character and who he is. Friends, in, the, in your own personal dark night, how easy is it to forget God's character? Doubt and spewing lies is the language of the serpent, right? He's a coward. And in your darkest moment, that's when he comes in. He wants to immediately make you start questioning the character of God. Friends, God is not passive, but he's a very present help in time of need. Verse 15 is a proclamation of strength. The Israelites never forgot their, their deliverance from, the, from Egyptian bondage and slavery. Jacob and Joseph are favorite names in Hebrew poetry. Either of them designates the people of Israel. So the use of both of them here is emphatic. Asaph is back in the game. He had a momentary lapse in his hope. But after doing the hard work of searching the heart, he is now back in the fight. Asaph now is at the pinnacle of his meditation. At the end of verses 15, you see the word Selah. It almost feels like he is taking one last big deep breath before he begins his final burst. Leads me to my final point. The God of Jacob and Joseph is a warrior. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Friends, the Marvel, movie, the Marvel movies, in their intensity and epic cinematics, truly have nothing on the last four verses of Psalm 77. All nature is subject to God. Who is more lawless, less controlled by reason than waters, lightning, 
and yet they obey God. We even see this when God was incarnate through Jesus Christ, when he silenced the storm and the raging seas. Verses 16 through 19 is a vivid description of what God did at the parting of the Red Sea. The people of Israel never forgot that divine act for generations upon generations. It was a great source of comfort to them, no matter what they were going through. If God could do that, then what will he do for us in the future? God's footprints are often unseen. R.C. Sproul speaks of God's providence and sovereignty as the invisible hand. But we know, and God's people knew, without a doubt, this was God working on our behalf. There was no question. Any notion, any notion of Asaph's problems are forgotten. The idea of an absentee creator has been obliterated. The restoration of a right view of God and what he has done has been, been reestablished in Asaph's heart. Now the ending of this psalm shows us God's heart. His heart is for the flock. He led his people like a shepherd. Tenderly and powerfully. A remembrance of God leading like a shepherd would reassure Asaph that God will lead him personally to safety and security. Friends, as we close, if Asaph was here today to address us, I think he would add a couple more verses to this passage especially for you here today that are suffering. I think he'd grab you by the collar, put his arm around you, and look you in the eyes. And he would say something like this. Your way, O oh Lord, was through the cross where your son Jesus Christ would purchase and rescue your people once and for all from the bondage of sin and death. The earth rumbled as the tomb was rolled away and you raised your son Jesus from, the de from death to seal our hope that you will make all things new. And then, O oh Lord, you seated him at the right hand on the throne reigning eternally. And one day at a time you have prepared, you will come back for us. Jesus, you will come back robed in white as a warrior to put away sin, death, depression, cancer, doubt, physical pain, debilitating sorrow, corruption, wickedness, and injustice once and for all. We will reign with you in glory, O Lord. You will wipe away every tear and sorrow. And the heir of the new kingdom will be free from the very presence of sin and sorrow. And we will worship you with all the saints eternally forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it 
convicts us, instructs us, and heals us. Lord, I do pray for the sufferer right now in this room. They may feel like they're unseen by you and unseen by others, but God, I just ask right now that you would draw near. You would overwhelm with a peace that surpasses all understanding. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for what it accomplished for us. Lord, even as Chick mentioned in his prayer, that we who are so unworthy and undeserving would be called righteous. Lord, we thank you. Let that comfort us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.